0: Welcome to the Tax Cell Podcast, where tax sell investing is made easy. My name is Casey Dimon. I'm a tax sell veteran. I'm the leading tax sell expert. I'm the author of the Tax Cell Playbook, founder of the Tax Cell Academy, and I am your host right here on the Tax Cell Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me on today's podcast episode. As always, this is a completely free podcast brought to you through and because of the Tax Cell Academy. All right, today I want to talk about those worthless tax sell properties, because odds are you're gonna come across them a time or two or plenty more times throughout your tax sell career. So let's go over three examples today and the reasons that those type of properties even exist and most importantly, how you should approach them from an investment standpoint. So what am I even talking about when it comes to worthless tax sell properties? There are plenty of different examples, but let's talk about three that I see come up very commonly. The first one is a strip of land, and I've seen these strips of land go on for 10,000 feet. That's nearly two miles. Now, it's only six feet wide, so six feet by 10,000 feet long. That is a 1.3 acre parcel land, of course, but at six feet wide, it is pretty useless to most people. Now, I did a case study a year or so ago about a man who thought he was purchasing a townhouse. That townhouse would have been worth upwards of $200,000, and he only paid $9,100 for what he assumed was a townhouse, which of course would have been an incredible deal. Unfortunately, it was a one-foot strip of land that was basically between Two townhouses. And this isn't entirely uncommon. When developers develop real estate, they generally want to try to use every square inch of that real estate in some sort of productive way, right? Now, it's not quite as easy as that might seem, especially when you're looking at subdivisions that were developed many years ago and they didn't have the computer programs that they have today that assist them. The result is that sometimes very small pieces of land would get left off of that subdivision's development only to be found after the fact and taxed. Case in point is what happened to that gentleman who thought he was purchasing a villa. That one foot strip of land was actually never even parceled out correctly when they developed that subdivision. After the fact, it went on tax rolls, and this poor gentleman was the buyer. Now, obviously he should have done better research, but at the end of the day, those types of properties do exist because of developmental type issues. Other issues arise when the land was not used as originally intended. For example, there might be a strip of land where a sidewalk was going to be built at one time and it was never built. And then somehow or another, it ended up on the tax rolls. I've also seen this happen with lands that were used or intended to be used for easements to bury something like a power line. For example, you don't need much land, just a small strip of land. And there's plenty of cases where the land was divided. That easement for that power line was created, but it was never used. Perhaps the utility provider wanted to come in from the opposite end of that subdivision. The result, is a leftover easement that eventually gets sold at an auction. I've also seen alleyways that end up with the same issues, an alleyway between two rows of homes that is used initially, then goes abandoned and somehow ends up at a tax sale, right? Again, that property is not very valuable to most people. So what do you do? How do you look at those properties when they pop up on a tax sale list? these strips of land, are they even worth looking at as an investment? Well, generally they are pretty poor investments, unless you have a very specific strategy. Now, if you're the neighbor to one of those pieces, it might actually be a good investment. So you can own that piece of land right next door, perhaps combine it with your land, increasing the value of your property. If you are the investor, thinking about buying that land and then going out and soliciting all of the local landowners around it or the adjoining landowners to buy that property from you, that probably isn't as good of an idea as you think it might be because they probably already know that property is worthless and they'll actually probably enjoy you paying the taxes on the land that they garden on, that they park their vehicles on, or they let their kids play on, already. They know you're not going to build on that property. Another option is to buy a strip of land like this with a very creative strategy, but not a vindictive strategy. So here's what I mean. If I buy something that people are using and they've been using for many years, say as an easement or a walkway, and then you suddenly put a gate across that property, you're going to be hated at best and you're going to end up in court at worst. But the way to look at this in a method that makes sense and can make a lot of people happy is by using an easement, by buying an easement or a strip of land to access lands that you own or intend to own in the future. So I've personally purchased an easement before that attached to a piece of land behind it. It was a 20-foot wide piece of land that attached to some acreage back behind some other homes. These were two separate parcels. You had the acreage, then you had the easement. Both of these came up at the tax sale and I was interested in both of these, mainly the acreage, but I needed that easement in order to access that acreage. Now that strip of land that came up first at the tax sale. So I purchased it first. A couple of properties later, they sold that acreage. And even though that acreage did not have legal access, it still sold for quite a bit of money, more money than I wanted to invest in that property. But the cool part here is the person that purchased that acreage walked over to me and said, listen, I know that you purchased that strip of land that provides access to the acreage that I just purchased, and I'll give you twice what you just bought it for so i double my money in a matter of minutes so when you're buying strips of land like we described you must be extremely careful and extremely strategic now on that same token let's talk about the properties that are just too small to build and we have two classifications of this the first are properties that are obviously way too small like you cannot even fit a structure on these properties these are not just strips of land but it's like a 10 foot by 10 foot piece of land, or maybe 20 by 20, something very, very small where you just can't do anything with it. Obviously not much room at all with those properties. Now the second type of properties that are too small to build are properties that are too small per current county code. So let's say you have a 50 foot by 100 foot lot, but the county requires at least 7,500 square feet to build. In that situation, even though you could probably physically build on that property, you can't build on that property per current county code. Another way to look at this is through the required setbacks. So a setback is the distance from the property line to the structure. And you usually have a front setback, a rear setback, and you have setbacks on both sides. So let's say, for example, you have a 20-foot required setback on each side per current county code. If your lot is only 50 feet wide, that means you have 10 feet in the middle that you're able to build on. Obviously, that's going to be a pretty small house. And more than likely, that's going to be an unbuildable piece of land because you cannot meet the county required setbacks. Now, the reason that you have properties like this is most of these subdivisions were developed many, many years ago prior to the current regulations. And in a lot of these areas, instead of being grandfathered in, these lots just became unbuildable, primarily because it was not practical to grandfather these lots in in the first place. In fact, many times these lots were initially sold, not as building lots, but as recreation or campsite lots. Now in some areas, there might still actually be demand for these types of properties. That 25- or 30-foot lot might not be buildable. You might be able to put a house or a mobile home on it, but you might still be allowed to use it to park your RV or maybe even to pitch a tent. I've purchased and sold many of these types of properties over the years. And utilizing some very creative marketing efforts, you can actually develop quite a buyer's list for these types of Properties now understand the paydays are pretty small in most cases. Picking up a lot for say three hundred dollars and selling it for eight hundred or nine hundred dollars is somewhat common in these types of areas. It's a large percentage return, but a small dollar return. Nonetheless, you can still make money with the right approach. Another option is to combine multiple lots so that the overall size does allow for building. And I discussed this a couple of weeks ago right here on the podcast, but there's an area local to me where you need at least 75 feet to build. Now all the lots in this area are 50 foot wide. So I bought one of these lots from a private individual, another one, at a tax sale i join the two lots together and i will easily triple or even quadruple my money simply by joining two unbuildable lots into one buildable lot again it's all about strategy and you must make sure that you have a foolproof plan before simply going out and buying a whole bunch of small and otherwise worthless lots all right the last one i want to discuss today is what i refer to as the specific purpose land. This is land intended zone classified whatever you want to call it for a very specific purpose per county requirements. Now I saw a gentleman just last week purchase a lot in a built-out subdivision. All the lots in this subdivision are a quarter to a third of an acre large. You have pretty small lots. This piece of property was 6 entire acres. Now he likely thought that he got the one large property in that subdivision and he was going to make lots of money. In reality, he purchased land that was deemed, it was classified as conservation land. Now conservation land in most parts is land that indicates it can never be improved or built upon. And this is often done by developers in exchange for the county's approval of that subdivision in the first place. In other words, they're gonna say, we want to develop all this land, but we're gonna put a green space or a buffer around it, or we're not gonna cut down trees in this section. And they often do this to kind of make their project look more appealing, which of course will help get it approved so they can make their money when they develop the subdivision. Now, other landowners, especially the large acreage type landowners, like Timberland, they'll do it for tax. Purposes, They'll say, we will never build on this land if you give us some sort of tax abatement. Now, for these park areas that you see sold at tax sales, most of the time, the improvements on that park land never actually existed. There was no playground, no tennis courts, nothing like that. Now, with that said, I have seen a handful of times where I've gone to a tax sale and saw a piece of property sold designated as a park that actually did have a children's swing set on, a neighborhood swing set on, like a commercial grade type swing set. So imagine being the guy that buys that property, sight unseen, only to drive by it after the auction to realize that all the neighborhood kids are playing on the swing set located on the land you just bought but can't use. The issue with these types of properties is that once they're designated for certain things like a park, they're often zoned or classified with the county as unbuildable. In other words, once they get that zoning or that classification of a conservation space or a green space or a park or similar designation, it pretty much sticks forever. In other words, to get it changed, you would have to petition the county or the city. And usually that's a very lengthy process and sometimes it can cost quite a bit of money. So when it comes to that conservation area, for example, you would have to petition them to remove the conservation area label from that property. And that's highly unlikely, especially when you think about it from the county's perspective. It's going to make the county office that approves that look real bad. And in a lot of areas, an elected official actually has to approve that. And they're probably not going to change that classification just because you asked them to. Now, it's a community park the same thing goes. If it's a community swing set area, for example, you would actually have to petition the county to remove that swing set, to remove that park classification, so you can now flip that property, or build on it, or whatever you wanna do. And also, something to think about, in many areas, when you go to petition to change the land use of a piece of property, all of the area neighbors are notified. Per county requirements in a lot of areas. And it could be everybody that owns property within a thousand feet, within a half a mile, or a mile. So you're not only petitioning the county to change the land for you, you have to get that elected official or that county office to be on your side. But in addition to that, you're probably going to have to go in front of some sort of board or some sort of hearing. And when you do that, just think about all those property owners that are going to show up at that same hearing. To contest your change to the zoning or land use especially when their children plays on that playground every single afternoon so in this situation it's usually not worth the risk trying to buy a property like this and make it work the issue is that your reliance on the county or the city to change the zoning for you is the entire basis behind your investment and as mentioned odds are they probably won't redesignate a property from a park or conservation area to a single family lot, just because you want them to. So as you can see, there are plenty of worthless properties at tax sales. In some situations you can actually figure out some very creative ways to make money with them. In other situations, it's nearly impossible to make money with them and it's very, very risky to even try. My suggestion, is to first make sure you are thoroughly researching the properties that you're looking at to make sure you know how to spot these worthless properties so you don't buy them by accident. Secondly, if you decide you wanna make an attempt to turn them into cash somehow, develop your strategy pre-purchase. Never buy something simply because it is cheap. And then lastly, start very small. Buy one, buy two, execute your strategy, and then go back and buy more. So research, strategize, and then test that strategy. And if it all works out, by all means, go for it. There should not be a whole lot of competition on those types of properties. That's it for today. Thank you so much for joining me. If this episode or any of our episodes right here on the Tax Sell Podcast have helped you out, please do me a huge favor and leave us some positive feedback on whatever podcasting platform you're listening to us on right now. It truly means quite a bit to us When we see those positive reviews and for more information on tax on investing, be sure to check out all the links in today's show notes. Take care and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.